Welcome to Bioethics on Air, a program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. The mentality of assisted suicide is becoming increasingly prevalent in the medical field. In her first podcast, our guest, Chris Carrera, a physician assistant, identified social factors that led to the rise of the assisted suicide mentality, explained how medical associations have shifted their positions on assisted suicide from opposed to neutral, and discussed specific ways that this mentality has manifested itself in society. In this second podcast, Ms. Carrera describes how the mentality of assisted suicide leads to the undertreatment of patients, particularly through erroneous applications of do not resuscitate orders and advanced directives. She then discusses how patients can recognize and combat this mentality in their interactions with healthcare professionals. She concludes by offering a perspective on the future of assisted suicide in the United States. In past conversations, you've said that acceptance of assisted suicide leads to the undertreatment of patients. Can you, can you explain what you mean by under, by under treatment and offer some examples? Yeah, yeah, sadly, yes. Um, so a couple of things. What is the big mismatch between, and this was the thing that really drove me into talking about the advanced directives and um, assisted suicide. I see how patients view these things, and then I see how the medical system views them, and they are so different that the patients are not aware of what's going on in the medical system. So uh, working in emergency medicine, um, we started out before the, these MOLST forms, these medical orders for life-sustaining right. treatment, right? Um, we started out what was called a do not resuscitate order. Mm-hmm. And uh, these were used you know, pre-hospitally, so I dealt with this in training paramedics as well as in the ER. And uh, what would happen is they, they would come in with these DNR orders and uh, the doctor would then say, oh, well, let's not put them in the ICU because they're DNR. Well, wait a minute. DNR says do not resuscitate. That means if their heart stops right. and they stop breathing, it has nothing to do with whether or not they go into the ICU or not. And this is really critical in patients like who have, for example, pneumonia, because those who get early ICU care do better than those who don't. So it really impacts um, patient outcomes. And uh, and so that was that was one big uh, example of it. And then there was also something in 1991 called the Patient Self-Determination Act. Mm-hmm. So this came out just as I was starting practice. And what would happen is, uh, what, what the law is, is when you go into the hospital and you get admitted, you need to ask somebody about their, um, about their wishes for treatment. Mostly it's about resuscitation. Now, when this first started, um, it was always the struggle between, you know, the resident would say, you ask them. And, we'd be, and the ER staff would be like, no, you ask them. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wanted to have these conversations. And, uh, and eventually it was settled that the, the residents who were admitting them would have them because they would be taking care of the patient on the floor. So, uh, and patients didn't know how to answer you. And, and why we didn't want to have these conversations is because, you know, the patients look at you like, why are you asking me this? Right. Am I dying? Right. And uh, it's not the way to have these conversations. 
And uh, what, I, what I found interesting is the law just says you just need to ask them if there are advanced directives in place. And that's it. Conversation stops. Mm-hmm. You are not supposed to then try to extract from them uh, directives on the spot. And that's what we see now in, in very um, unsettling terms where they say, do you want somebody to pound on your chest and break your ribs? Right. Would you really want that? First of all, if I'm if I'm having cardiopulmonary arrest, I'm not going to feel a thing. And second of all, if I am a patient with advanced cancer or or some other illness, my chances of resusc- being resuscitated are zero, really. Um, so, and I said, you know, do you is that how you prepare people for surgery? Is that how we do informed consents? Okay, I'm going to. Um, you know, take a scalpel and cut open your skin and pull out the sides. You know, we don't, that's not what we do. That's not how we, how we have other conversations. So it's not how we should be having this conversation. And the, the objective is clear to try and get patients to forego treatment. And that's what advanced directives do. That's why Insurance companies are pushing advanced directives, and uh, it, it continues to go against uh, the dignity of the human person. So what you're saying is, if I have to be on dialysis, then um, my life isn't worth living. I, I'm lesser, you know, I'm, I'm a lesser of a person, and so therefore, um, let me die rather than have to suffer going to dialysis three times a week. You know, I, I asked. This woman, you know, we were discussing this, and she said, I wouldn't want to be on dialysis. She's a medical she's a physician. She said, I wouldn't want to be on dialysis. And I looked at her and I said, well, wait a minute. You've got three kids, three grown kids, and none of them have had grandchildren yet. What if, you know, one of your kids was expecting your first grandchild and you needed to go on dialysis? Oh, I would go on dialysis. Absolutely. Uh, this is why... I have always advocated and the NCBC always advocates that we make these decisions when they are presented to us and not in advance as an advanced directive because you just don't know what your situation will be. And, uh, and by putting down those advanced directives, it's only a means of the medical system um, giving them you know, license to, to reduce your care. Uh, there was a very interesting series of um, of articles by um, Meraki, um, Fernando Meraki. It was called the Triad Series, which is called the Realistic Interpretation of Advanced Directives. And he asked everybody. He tested physicians. He tested students, residents, EMTs. They all flunked, okay? They all could not get straight what, how to appropriately institute an advanced directive. And I just remember a couple of quotes from him. Um, One is, a DNR does not equate with end-of-life care or do not treat orders. That is a misnomer that has developed over the years, which we in the healthcare community have allowed to happen. DNR orders only come into play when a physician is found in cardiac arrest. And his other great quote, in the situation of a critical illness, there are paternalistic providers who seem to think that that is the time to essentially withdraw care, treatment, or life-supporting measures. 
Then there are others who are more patient-centered, who feel that you give the treatment and then allow the patient, allow the family to make the decision. I do not know which one is going to win out there, but I have the feeling it is going to be financially based to some degree. Well, now we see futility laws that have been enacted in Texas. Uh, we saw Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans, who was deciding whether or not they were going to get, get care. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my own personal experience, you know, and, and we've talked a little bit about this when I was down there, how, how it, 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 these have really started to cloud clinical thinking in odd ways. Um, so when my stepfather was ill with, was died with cancer, um, he had an episode of rapid AFib, so his heart was beating so fast. And they were giving him medications to try and get it to stop. And when the medications don't work, you have to actually shock them. You know, mm-hmm. you put electricity across the chest. And, um, you know, the cardiologist was quite hesitant for good reason because he, you know, there were a lot of things to take in, into, into mind. One was the fact that he had brain metastasis. And, um, and it turned out he didn't need to do that. Um, but he was ready to do it because he, he was convinced that this was something that had never happened before and that there was no clot in his heart. There's a, there's a lot of medical issues that are involved with that. But the next time he got admitted to the emergency department, by then um, he had filled out uh, a MOLST form. Now, it was, it was appropriate at his stage, um, mostly because he was going to dialysis three times a week. And if he, if he did go into cardiac arrest during dialysis, he did not want to be resuscitated. And really, he was nearing the end. Um, however, when he got to the emergency department, um, they just hear that he has this most form. Right. And I asked the physician, I said, what happens if he goes into a rapid AFib? Would you um, cardiovert him to put his heart back in rhythm? He says, no, no. I wouldn't do that. That's a resuscitation. So what's the difference between putting an IV and giving him a drug to try and stop his heart from doing it or, or using electricity to do it? And he couldn't really answer that question. Mm-hmm. And so that's one sense in where, you know, there was a clouded de- judgment. He developed these breathing problems. We didn't know whether it was from his congestive heart failure or from effusions from his lungs. And I said, look, just tap him. You can tell from the tap, you pull the fluid out of the lungs, whether it's more from the heart, which would be thin and watery, or whether it's more from the cancer. And he would breathe better if, you, if it was from the cancer and you could drain it off. And they said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And, uh, and so it turned out the tap was, it showed it was more from his heart. Um, but the worst of these, which really shows everything that I've been talking about, um, my mom is very sick with uh, leukemia. And she's a very active woman. She's never been sick. When she's home, you know, leukemia doesn't have a lot of pain with it. Um, she's out and about bopping around and, and, you know, going off to Europe to visit my, my brother when she was in remission and whatnot. Uh, but she goes in with a fever. And I was at the bedside until she was admitted, ready to, you know, go up to the floor. I, I leave, and within two hours, I get a call from what had to be probably the, the, the lowest-ranking resident on the cardiology team that said, um, 
your mom's been having, her heart rate's been dropping down to 30 and we don't know why. And so we've been trying to ask her what she wanted for resuscitation. And she, and all she kept saying was to call you. And I could just imagine my mother being absolutely panicked. Mm-hmm. You know, we had gone home. We were not by the bedside. She didn't know what they were talking about. She didn't know what was going on because she's never had any heart problems. And to try to uh, extract from her, you know, again, all they had to say is, do you have advanced directives? No. But she is a, a full code. And, uh, and then she started talking to me about pacing because my mother has these low platelets, which makes her prone to bleeding. So they're low, but they're not low enough that you worry. It's, it's, uh, it's an interesting line how it works. But, um, but they said, well, she's got the external pacer pads on, but we really don't want to put a pacer wire in her unless, uh, you know, because of her platelets. And I said, look, um, her platelets are work well enough that you could put a pacer wire in. And if you're talking about, because she's talking about patient comfort. So if you're talking about patient comfort, if she did need a pacer, putting a, wire, a temporary wire in and pacing that way is far more comfortable than getting shocks across the chest. And she said, oh, yeah, you're right. I said, do you want me to come in? She said, yes, please. <laughs> so I turned around and back. It turned out she never needed the pacer wire. Um, and, and if she needed a pacemaker, which would have meant something implanted into her, which would have increased her risk of infection with advanced leukemia is hugely problematic. We made it clear she didn't want a pacemaker. Um, but if she needed some kind of temporary pacing to, to make it what might have been through just some condition, that truly the pacing wire is a much more comfortable way of, of getting seeing her through an episode like that than, um, than, trans- than the, these pacer pads on the chest. So um, that's the kind of, of crazy situations we end up with um, because we've put these advanced directives and, and these, these, these need to know what they want ahead of our own clinical thinking. All right. So if I could kind of quickly summarize um, the question about undertreatment, you, you, you said that this mentality of undertreatment arises because a insurance companies or cost, you know, cost concerns. We don't want to do these expensive treatments or B medical professionals have made a judgment that a patient's condition is, you know, it's not a high quality of life. So, you know, we're not going to treat such and such a condition. Um, is that summary accurate? Yes. And I think B is much more prevalent right now than A. A ends up being their go-to reason. Okay. All right. <laughs> but B is really what's going on. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the, the, the medical system being so overburdened. Okay. And then saying, why, why am I doing this for these people when I've got so many other, other patients I need to care for? Okay, so if those those are the two elements, two main elements of undertreatment, how do patients recognize this in their own care? And if they do recognize it, how can they combat it? So this is what, you know, as they say, keeps you up at night, right? Um, first thing I would say is uh, no advanced directives that decline any kind of care. Um, as uh, that 
uh, that wonderful bioethicist priest I told you about, Monsignor Peter Bolio, once said, don't give them the bullets to shoot you with. Okay. <laughs> so, now, um, he, he's been the head of the St. Vincent Hospital um, Ethics Board for 30 years now, and he's our diocesan bioethicist, and he just has a great way <laughs> of seeing like these that. issues very clearly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like that. That's a good line. It's very good. Um, what worries me is that without medical adv- medical advocate, I mean, I just see what I went through with my stepdad and with my and what I go through with my mom every day. You know, I'm at that bedside every day when she's in the hospital, and I'm very happy that her oncologist knows. And she and it's funny how the oncologist has to almost justify to her colleagues, "Oh no, you don't know this woman at home. She's up and around and be you know, like they." She has to prove to them that her that she's an active seventy five year old and not this frail woman that that she appears to be when she's in a hospital bed um, with this advanced cancer. Um, and when I go out and speak about assisted suicide, I bring up the the, the topic of um, advanced directives and most, and people are just full of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't realize it's a lot. Some of them have filled out most forms and they had no idea right. what, what they meant. Um, at this point, um, I'm th- I think involving your primary care physician, uh, you know, now Medicare pays for you to have these, these conversations. I have these conversations with my patients because, um, I, I can see like a patient told me, you know, I was asking her about resuscitation, and she says, no, no, uh-uh, I don't want to be stuck on one of those machines. And I said, oh, I can definitely appreciate that. But let me ask, if if um, you needed to be on a ventilator for a short period of time to see if it was beneficial, um, and if it wasn't, we would just withdraw the treatment, which these days, you ask somebody to withdraw treatment, and they're running for the plug to pull it, okay? Mm-hmm. It's not hard, not like like people once thought it was. Um, she's like, oh yeah, I would want that. Uh, so you need to really have these conversations in depth and they're, and that's not how it's happening. These forms are being handed to patients and say, here, fill them out. Um, and, uh, and, and that's why the, the, the patients really have no idea of how the medical community is viewing these things. So if you at least have a primary care, of course, you should have a health care proxy in case you can't make decisions yourself. But if you, you know, how are you supposed to know if the doctor is really telling you, you know, uh, there are no other treatments or is this you don't think I'm worth any other treatments? Um, Great question. At least you can say um, if you have a good relationship with a physician, with your primary care physician, who one, you know, does not accept assisted suicide. Two, you've had end-of-life conversations with them, and perhaps you've even been their patient for a very long period of time, so they know you. You can, If you don't know the answer, you can ask, at least ask, can you please consult with my primary care physician so that, that we can step in and at least sort through the medical jargon um, to help you sort out that medical piece of it, somebody who's familiar with you. You know, my mother's in the hospital. She's being cared for by a hospitalist. You know, and those hospitalists change every 12 hours. They don't know my mother from anybody. 
whereas her in, in this case it's her oncologist you know when i paged her oncologist to tell her about what the cardiology team was doing it asking about advanced directives she, you know she said they never should have done this without consulting me first because i i trust that she know, she knows my mother she knows what she wants she knows you know she knows our family very well and so um that is where i think is how we are going to be able to um help to stem this you know try to sort of merge the the patient perception with the medical community perception um you know it's it's a shame that the primary care is no longer involved in caring for patients when they're in the hospital recent interesting studies showed that when primary care patients primary care physicians take care of hospitalized patients instead of hospitalists patients have better outcomes all right, I'd like to bring this back as we move towards a conclusion, uh, bring it back to the, the question of assisted suicide in general. So right now, assisted suicide is legal in seven states, Hawaii being the latest state, uh, plus Washington, D.C. So what do you, as a physician assistant, what do you see as the future of assisted suicide in our country, and, and how can we prevent it, prevent it from spreading? So given the acceptance of the, the medical community, um, I see it continuing to expand, unfortunately, uh, which means we have to, one, at least try to educate our colleagues um, as to what's going on and, and, and what their role in it could be, but as well as educating the public because that's what affects the political process. Um, you know, ask our colleagues to pay attention to what is happening, like what happened with the Med Mass Medical Society. You know, open your email and answer the survey, <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, be willing to put your neck on the line to, you know, to come in with like those, the, the 20 or so of us that went in for Doctor's Day. You know, I know a lot of legal professionals and medical professionals are like, I'm all for what you're doing. Yeah, but I really can't publicly say anything right and um you know and these are all catholics and um it's disappointing um, make known our opposition um you know as the laity we must wade into the political process that is our role in the church to engage the culture um but also the clergy needs they need to teach, exhort, and support us. You know, it's a two-fold process, you know, and, that, and that's been the blessing of where I am at, at Christ the King Parish and with our Witness for Life Committee. You know, our pastor doesn't show up to our meetings. He's off offering Mass at the nursing home. But anytime we have an, uh, a question, anytime we email him, he is putting, implementing our programs in the parish very, very supportive. It has a novena to St. Joseph's, which is specifically to stem the tide of assisted suicide. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful collaboration of the spiritual versus, you know, with the, with the laity. Um, there's a wonderful movie. This is the latest thing we're doing as, um, with, as Witness for Life is a movie called Fatal Flaws, The Legalizing of Assisted Suicide. Um, if you look at Fatal Flaws movie, I don't know if it's .com, I believe. Um, it's put out by uh, Dunn Media. Um, you can get it through the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition. 
So he's done a great job documenting both those for and against assisted suicide, um, traveled the world, went to the European countries where they've been legalized mm-hmm. for a while, and really exposes how this business of thinking it's about autonomy turns out to be, no, it's not. It really ends up being doctors. It's really about cover for doctors, allowing them to to do this without any ramifications on their um, on their lives. Um, so definitely see that and 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 ask other people to see it. Um, in terms of getting information, you know, obviously the National Catholic Bio, Bioethics Center is a great place, as well as the Catholic Medical Association and the USCCB, the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, the Patients' Rights Action Fund. So those two are both national. Um, if you follow the work of Wesley J. Smith on the uh, uh, human exceptionalism of the National Review, also the work of Michael Cook, uh, he's got two websites, Mercator.net and BioEdge.org, um, to find out uh, and, and get really good perspective and good argument, um, not just not just faith-based, but also through um, natural law. And, uh, and of course, praying and contemplating. You know, don't just pray, God, please make this go away. <laughs> you know, um, really sit in contemplation in, in how God um, will work through you to, with, to do whatever it is that God wants you to do um, for this, uh, for, for, for anything stemming this radical autonomism and uh, radical autonomy and the culture of death. Chris, any final words of wisdom you'd like to leave us with? Uh, so, ultimately, all of this, whether it's assisted suicide, euthanasia, abortion, assistive reproductive technologies, genetic modification, um, everything we deal with in bioethics, everything that we covered in the NCBC cert- certificate program, um, comes down to how we view the dignity of the human person. You know, is it something extrinsic, as we say, right? So it comes from outside of us where man decides what is dignity and what isn't. Um, or is it something intrinsic to every human life? Right? We know through faith, because God has revealed it to us, that human life has intrinsic dignity. But, you know, we see through reason the destructive, even oppressive ends of of looking at dignity as extrinsic, as an extrinsic dignity. Um, this is a thread that must, you know, be woven through the entire, everything that has to do with social justice, not just bioethics, right? Um, and not just social ethics. You can't just apply it to one end or the other end and not both. Um, you know, any notion that values um, one set of people over another set of people. So one is, has dignity and the others don't. Or puts, you know, other forms of life on par with human beings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that has to be rejected. Uh, and, and this should be the foundation from which any other discussion must proceed. And really the value that must be most cherished by all of us. And and that's not a faith-based argument. That's, you know, that's a natural law-based. That is something I think we all could agree on. Chris, thank you for a wonderful interview today. Thank you, Joe. It's been wonderful talking with you. 
For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. If you enjoy these podcasts and would like to support them and the National Catholic Bioethics Center, please click the donate button on our website. I'm your host, Joe Zalot. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.